This is the I Read Comic Books Podcast. I am your host, Mike Rappin. This week, I'm joined by two of the background players at the poker game in 007 Quantum of Solace, Paul Jaceley. The name's Jaceley. Paul Jaceley. <laughs> and Nick White. Can, can we just be dogs in the poker painting? Can we switch the <laughs> poker theme? Can we, uh, well, can I we guess be we the can. two dogs smoking cigars in a poker painting? We're going to give Nick just an eye patch and a scar over his eye and call him a good background character. Okay. Um, thank you both for joining me this week. This is episode 290 of I Read Comic Books. Uh, very excited to talk about comic books with you guys. But before we get into that, uh, I just want to let everyone know, in case you aren't subscribed to Patreon and getting our schedule updates, we have a Hangout coming out on June 26th at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard. Make sure that you're there. Come hang out with us. Chat about comic books. June 26th, 8 p.m. It's going to be a blast. All on the Discord. All on the live stage. We'll be doing a talk show style thing like we always do. And really, it's a great time. People are people are online having a, a, a fun blast of, of a time for really long, like hours, hours and hours. So I um, hope to see you all there. But Let's get into things. Let's talk about comic books. Let me ask the questions that I have to ask. How have you been? How have comic books been? Let's start with you, Nick. I mean, West Michigan Weather Watch, right? We got to start there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I don't you. know what it was like for you yesterday, Paul, but it was cloudy, cloudy, cloudy. Sun yeah. shows up for 10 seconds. Cloudy, cloudy, cloudy. Sun shows up for 10 seconds. Rain, no rain. Rain again. Sun finally comes out. And the temperature dials up to 11 out of nowhere at like yeah. four in the afternoon. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yep, sure. That's about right. It, yeah. It's, it's, uh, we're, we're at that point. Michigan is, is, uh, like I, I, I am, I am not eagerly anticipating global warming. The only, like, I guess small silver lining is that anyone who lives in Michigan is probably semi prepared. <laughs> sure. For <laughs> the mess that will inevitably come with it. So, um, which is probably also why a lot of people in Michigan, maybe I shouldn't say a lot. Who knows how many people in Michigan don't believe in global warming? So that's another thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh boy. Um, yeah. <laughs> how have comic books been, Dick? <laughs> no, I wanted. Let's make this political. We're the. This is this is meet the press now. Um, Great. No. Uh, so let me be clear, Michiganders. I I do not believe that you are more or less predisposed than the average American to believe or disbelieve in global warming. Please don't be mad that out of the way what have i been reading so i reread this volume of this book called the damned it's from oni press Mm -hmm. uh it's by colin bunn art by brian hurt colors by bill crabtree letters by crank um and if this team seems familiar uh it is the team that would several years later uh create the sixth gun also for oni um i've always believed that Cullen Bunn's original work is a lot better than his big two work. Um, the Damned is no different. It's kind of a weird book because this uh, originally came out in black and white in 06. And then 11 years later, the book got recolored uh, in 2017. And they recolored the first volume sort of as an impetus to get new readers because after they recolored the first volume, they then relaunched it as an ongoing series mm-hmm. that was colored also by Bill Crabtree. And that started as a new number one, which was a jumping on point for new readers and an extension point for old readers. And so the original series has a subtitle after it. And then the second volume technically starts with the number one issue, which is, again, why I firmly believe that in 10, 20, 30, 100 years, unlike other mediums like like video games or, or TV shows or movies, you know, researchers will attempt to try to understand comic books and after about 10 minutes decide <laughs> that they've get, they're giving up. They're giving yeah, up. Right. They're right. not even going to try. So it was an unbridled mess and no one could figure it out. Therefore, this was the era of comic book. Right. right? That's, yeah. that's pretty much what the footnote will say. If Wikipedia goes away, no one will ever try. No one will stand a chance. <laughs> but it's it's an interesting idea because it's sort of like 1920s mobsters, but with a demonic twist. You've got mm-hmm. this sort of 1920s where these mobsters um, are obviously, you know, in full effect, but a lot of these mobs are run by demons. And so there's kind of this religious element. Um, you have this main character who uh, his name is Eddie, and he has this really weird ability, although later he defines it as a curse. 
And what happens is when he dies, if and when somebody comes into contact with his skin, you know, like they touch his hand or, you know, they, they grab his arm, that person who touches him automatically dies and Eddie comes back to life. Oh. Hmm. So it's this weird little conceit that makes him pretty valuable to this mob boss that he works for. Um, they're trying to, these two rival mob bosses, not unlike um, Capone and I can't remember the other guy, are trying to like bury the hatchet and have this truce. And Eddie's boss is convinced that like this one guy he hired to help, you know, uh, iron out this truce has gone and disappeared. And uh, he really doesn't know who to trust to hunt this person down, except he knows Eddie for a fact was dead at the Mm -hmm. time that this guy disappeared. So Eddie is the only person he knows for sure couldn't have been behind it. So, he sort of tasks Eddie with with hunting this person down and you sort of learn all this weird mythology about the world and when Eddie dies he goes to this bizarre kind of place that has all these other odd figures in it that he doesn't really understand and there might be some connections to his past in this place it's really interesting i i, I don't want to sort of spoil too much of this book but it's it's very creative there are some great ideas here like the initial scene with eddie you see him and he's dead and you think that what you're getting is a scene where these gangsters have unknowingly killed him you know not knowing his abilities Mm -hmm. you know as sort of a demonstration for what eddie can do but it's actually a really clever flipping the script on that expectation so i i would just recommend this book a lot I think the other really interesting defining trait about a book like this is so frequently when you see a book that was originally intended to be in black and white, um, when they go back and and it gets colored at another point, you end up sort of, I don't know, sometimes the inks or sometimes a lot of the defining line work just gets sort of muddied. It gets sort of like covered over or it's not really carefully done. Which, I mean, again, the book was not originally intended to be in color. Um, but I think Crabtree does a really, really good job of not messing with a lot of the heavier inks um, and a lot of the really good line work that Hurt has done here. So um, I would definitely recommend this book. Uh, it doesn't get enough love. Really, really fantastic. Hurt is a just an amazingly underrated penciler. Mm-hmm. As a sequential artist, I think... He, He's really, really good. Hmm. I do want to briefly touch on two other things. I read Berserker number three because... Uh-huh. Um, Sick. Are you okay? Yeah. <laughs> Look, like, obviously, like, self-care is, like, you know, really trending within the last couple of years, right? Um, <laughs> I don't know what the inverse of self-care is, but I feel that way when I read Berserk. Okay? Um, right. Or as I like to call it, the I'd like to buy a vowel book. Uh-huh. So, Berserk is written by Keanu Reeves or Matt Kent. I've made jokes that Keanu is actually the one writing all of it. I've made jokes that Matt Kent is actually the one writing all of it and that the other one is respectively <laughs> cashing checks. Um, uh-huh. At this point, it's not a joke. I don't know which one is actually writing the book. I could go either way on this. Ron Garney does the art. Bill Crabtree does the colors. Bill Crabtree again. Thank you. Uh, Clem Robbins does the letters. First off, uh, hey, boom. It's really cool that everyone gets a cover credit except your letterer. That's really, really cool. Maybe you should fix that. So uh, let's talk about (laughs) Berserk number three. Like I have in my notes here uh, because I tried to be rational about this so I wouldn't just fly off the cuff. Uh, I wrote, uh, if you thought that maybe just maybe Berserker would start to pump the fucking brakes on its fascination with all of the grotesque physical indignities (laughs) that human beings can inflict on one another, you'll be relieved to know that the first page of issue three uh, will quell those doubts. Uh, I think Ron Garney gets paid per corpse instead of by (laughs) the page. There's nothing like just kicking things off with a decapitated head on a stake. (laughs) whatever just gotta love it you know that's the kind of stuff i'm looking for with my big bombastic keanu reeves focused uh, (laughs) comic book yeah i mean our our hero lays waste to a whole bunch of people and you know he asks his dad if he's earned the right to put a gold star on whatever the prehistoric equivalent of a fridge is uh and his dad says of course and you know tells his son quote you know you destroy but you also build 
um, which I think is what we call grading on a curve. Um, uh huh. You know, his dad turns out to be power hungry and is pushing him, his son, to destroy all these other rivals that live increasingly further and further away from the village, probably aren't a threat. But of course, you know, again, power hungry dad, uh, maybe not the best book for Father's Day. I don't know. Maybe this isn't really <laughs> where we should be going. Sure. I wasn't happy with the pacing of this issue. I wasn't happy with the pacing of last month's issue. I wasn't happy with the level of just unadulterated violence last month. It's the same problem here. I wasn't mm-hmm. happy with how much of last month's issue was a massive flashback and almost all completely flashback. And if you had any of these issues with last month's issue, you're going to take issue with this month's issue. Okay. It's <laughs> okay. issues. This issue, okay. this issue has issues. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. <laughs> and then I want to spend just 30 seconds. Nick, I'm timing you. I'll start <laughs> the timing. <you. laughs> Yeah, go ahead. Here you go. Alien 3 and 4. I read them. I'm sure people were thinking, did Nick read Alien? I did read Alien. Here's all I want to say about Alien, okay? Issue 3 takes a tiny, tiny half step towards getting better. Guru EFX's colors really add atmosphere. I really thought issue 3 was heading to a good place. Issue 4 just completely obliterated that. If you want to talk about the issues with weird human faces, weird human Mm -hmm. poses, action paneling you can't make heads or tails of, issue four brings it back in full effect. Totally disappointed. My timer. Totally disappointed. That's it. My timer's going off, Nick. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So this is Nick's corner of of discussing comics that he buys and hates. I love it. It's my favorite favorite part of the show. Yes. (laughs) I I do want to hear like maybe near the end of an arc, I do want to hear like a full Nick White analysis on Alien because I know, and I think everybody there, everybody who listens to the show knows that your your love of Alien. So like, I think we would need to get like a bigger picture, maybe not individual issues so much as like the overall arc, just to get like a a baseline. Like if you're an Alien fan, should you be reading this book? I'm sure the answer is yes, but I'd like to go into the intricacies of it. So maybe we'll have to do like a focused discussion on this in the future. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, right now, all I would really want is for for Philip Kennedy Johnson to publish all of the scripts at the back of the first trade. And I will just rip that section out of the trade and I will go give it to someone else to draw. And, um, and we'll, we'll see what comes of that. Look, comics are good. Just maybe not this week. Not all. Okay. Hashtag not all comics. (laughs) Well, let's, let's, let's check in with Paul. Paul. Okay. Um, how are you? How have comic books been? All that stuff. Uh, I'm good. I'm good. I am. Um, one of these days, I'm going to finally get around to reading all the comics I bought a couple weeks ago. Um, my, I have a giant stacks of comics that are uh, intimidating me. And of course, I keep reading other stuff instead of going through those stuff, that stuff I bought recently. So uh, mm-hmm. speaking mm-hmm. of which, um, I read Spirit World number one. Um, what is Spirit World? Well, Spirit World is a magazine that Jack Kirby did back in 1971. Uh, part of Kirby's contract with DC Comics when he went to DC was to edit a line of magazines that were designed toward older readers or to get a different audience. And he only did two, um, one issue of each, one was Spirit World and one was called In the Days of the Mob. A couple years ago, DC did really nice hardcover reprints of both of those. And I'd read them. And then lo and behold, last week when I was at my comic shop, I found an original copy of Spirit Jeez. World number one from 1971. No uh, way. And I... One of those things like you see it and you do a double take, but that can't be spirit world number one. Clearly it can't be, but nope, sure enough it is. So I immediately grabbed it. Um, This is a really fascinating thing because again, Kirby at this point is so just brimming with ideas. He wanted to do a magazine that was filled with occult supernatural type stories to get into that market. Since this is the same time that um, the larger magazine size comics like eerie and creepy were coming out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And of course, he does it in the way only Kirby can. Like he does, he draws most of these stories. He writes them all. And there's stories, there's a story about a woman who has a premonition about the Kennedy assassination. And there's a story about a cult that is practicing transcendental meditation and connecting with the universe. It's all this far out trippy stuff, but it's done in Kirby's artwork. And it's, it's amazing. And my favorite thing about it is actually a lot of the stories feature photo collages that Kirby made. So the story about the premonition about the Kennedy assassination, you open it up and this double page spread of just like the white house in the background, a flag on a coffin, a 
Grim Reaper skull, all this like strange, uneasy uh, imagery that Kirby put together that gives you this sense of unease and foreboding. It's marvelous. And then the story about the cult that's practicing some sort of meditation to connect with the universe. It's a photo comic, like a fumetti. So Jack Kirby actually had his his daughter and his son dress up as these 70s hippie cult people and took photos of them and did like a photo comic. And it's so wild oh, to see somebody man. who's somebody who's already drawing like 25 pages a week of the new gods also finds time to do this stuff. And it's just it's all reprinted in like uh, sort of this like blue ink colors, monochromatic, but it looks so cool. I was so happy to find a copy uh, of this stuff. It's one of my favorite like oddball Kirby um you know, oddities that's out there. And uh, again, his stuff always mm-hmm. looks so much better on a big magazine sized uh, page. So uh, if you happen to come across a copy of Spirit number one, grab it. If not, those, like I said, those hardcover reprints DC did a couple years ago are great too. So good stuff. That's awesome. Paul's been having an amazing amount of luck, it feels, within the last couple months, <laughs> just like finding all of these weird things. Mm-hmm, and it mm-hmm. seems like you're finding them all at the same spot. Like I can't help but feel, and and this this is coming from someone who's perpetually paranoid, Paul. Um, yeah, yeah. I feel like someone's laying a trap for you. Like I feel like <laughs> I feel like Paul's this, like, oh look, I found this issue. What a what a weird coincidence. And then yeah. two months later, you know, this is this is Paul's version of like targeted Instagram ads. Oh my god, but it's <laughs> in real life. Absolutely. <laughs> And so, well, I mean, that's the thing. Whenever, whenever a story of a comic shop or record store gets like a big collection of cool stuff, like I, I had some pretty good luck with that stuff. So, you know, you happen to find, again, that's why I always tell everybody, take the time to flip through the back issue bins, take the time to dig through the dollar mm-hmm. bins. You're, there's always gold hiding in there for you. So uh, it might be placed there Absolutely. as some sort of elaborate uh, game type trap, but hey. It's worth the thrill, I think. And, and and this is why I always tell everybody, after you've gone through those backorder bins and you take those books home, it's a good time to look for tracking devices. And <laughs> sure. <laughs> they might be on the bag, they might be in, in right. they might be on, on the board, they might they might be burrowed underneath your skin and you might have to really dig around for a while to find oh them. Oh my gosh, because, Nick. Um someone's laying a trap for you. So Right. It's somewhere there's a puppet waiting to confront you on a closed circuit TV screen as you're right. chained to someone else. Yeah. Right. Uh, well, you know, that's the risk I'm going to take to enjoy the uh, my copy of Spirit World. <laughs> mm-hmm. Number one. Um, and very briefly, I do want to mention this because I did read the first two mm. collections of Sweet Tooth. Um, are you happy, Mike? I finally did, did it. it. All right. Um, he did it. <laughs> this is, of course, the uh, series written and drawn by Jeff Lemire. I had bought the first issue of this when it came out because I think when this came out, it's when Vertigo was doing their first issues were all a dollar. So I grabbed it and I had read Essex County at that point. So I knew Jeff Lemire's work, Lemire's work. And um, it didn't quite do much for me. I thought the pacing was very slow. I couldn't imagine reading this book month to month. So sitting down and actually mm-hmm. reading the volumes uh, collected worked a lot better. That said, I was still able to burn through these collections in about an hour apiece, if that. I mean, <laughs> mm-hmm. but that's now, the when thing you I'm, say collections, yeah. Were you reading the Omnis or were you reading? Oh no, like trades? it's like five issues out of the trades. Yep. Yeah, it's, okay. it's the, not okay. the books; it's the yeah. volumes. It's yeah. so stupid. Yeah. <laughs> Again, no one will bother to try to figure out comic books. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. But uh, that all that being said, like I did enjoy this. You know, I like I said, I didn't love the first issue when I read it years and years ago. But yeah, reading this now, I, I did enjoy it more than I expected to. It is at times feels cliched if you've read or watched um, Cormac McCarthy's The Road, either the book or the film version, you pretty much know what's going on mm-hmm. here. Um, and uh, again, Lemire's work is, uh, I like it visually. I've always kind of liked his artwork more than the stuff he just writes. Um, so that being said, like as someone who loved Essex County, I did appreciate that one of the issues in here, I think it's volume two. Uh, I don't remember which one it was, but there's an issue about a sad hockey player. So I'm like, oh, okay, well, that's exactly what Essex County is about. So he's yeah. going back to the well for that one. Um, I guess my biggest um, criticism so far is I like the deliberate pace of it. I like Lem- Lemire's work. I think he has such a masterful control of slowing the reader down and slowing the pace of the, the book without it feeling boring. But mm-hmm. I wonder if the book would look better if it was monochromatic or black and white. Um, I found the colors mm. somewhat distracting a lot of the time and sure. maybe it's cause I like his artwork so much to begin with that it did feel like it's like gilding the lily at that point, 
where you didn't need that. But overall, I, I enjoyed it. I'm, I've, I'll probably go ahead and finish the rest of it. Like I said, I burned through these these two volumes pretty quickly, so I can read the rest of it at some point. So uh, yeah, there you yeah. go, Mike. I did it, and uh, I liked it. So. I, you know, I, I appreciate it. And the thing, you know, I will say, I, I can see what you mean about the colors in this book because the whole yeah. book in general is very muddy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if you were reading it in like physical paper stock or if you're reading it digitally. Um, I'm, I'm because I feel yeah. like the fit. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, because I feel like the physical paper stock, the colors pop a little bit more than digital, which like doesn't make sense. Yeah. Interesting. But, like the, the times I've seen the physical book, it looks a lot nicer in some ways than the the digital edition um yeah. i don't really have a huge problem with it but i can definitely see why you haven't like think that this might look better in black and white because i think there are sequences in a black and white style and they're so striking yeah um yeah, like especially yeah. later in the book um there's just a handful of those moments and they're super striking and i think yeah it would be interesting to see like a noir version of, of sweet tooth <laughs> yeah <laughs> sweet tooth stripped and it's like well maybe that's not the best title for that one. No, no, no. <laughs> oh. yeah it, it 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 is interesting that you bring up the colors you know especially because those uh were basically the only thing lemire didn't do so that is kind of interesting yeah. right um i, I will and, ask you this though um mm-hmm. have you also been watching the show because I'm curious if this perception, because obviously, like, you can't not think of it if you have or haven't. But uh, is this perception we're getting of the book um, something that's existing alongside you watching the show? Or is this completely independent? Um, I was curious about the show. That's why I wanted to at least read the first few volumes of this. Oh, okay. Um, and then um, okay. I did watch I did watch the first episode. And I don't want to get into This is a discussion for another time. But uh, um, I yeah, don't... You know, I it's don't, as if we've got an you entire... You can give us, like, the one sentence. I was going to say, I watched the first episode. I don't think I'll be watching episode two. So I'll just leave it at okay, that. Wow. There we go. Yeah. So. Well, for those of you that are interested in talking about the show, uh, I would definitely say that you can check out the I Read Comic Book special miniseries that we're doing called Candy Bar Antler Boy featuring yours truly, where we talk about the Sweet Tooth show. <laughs> I'm guessing Paul's not going to be there. Now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, uh, with that slap to the face, um, <laughs> let's talk about, let me talk about what I've been reading. Uh, the only book that I want to talk about this week week is uh, Jalea. Uh, this is by Junie Ba from TKO Studios. Uh, it's spelled D-J-E-L-I-Y-A. Uh, I think this is probably one of the most hyped books in my timeline on Twitter, at least for a few months. So I picked it up. I pre-ordered it. I was like, yeah, let's get a physical copy of this. The book's art looks really, really pretty. I, I really wanted to check it out. And for those of you that know don't know, this story is uh, it's based heavily in, in Western African folklore. Uh, it follows two characters. Characters Awa and Mansoor, uh, a royal storyteller and her prince, respectively, as they travel to defeat the Blight of the World, a wizard who has destroyed the world with his tower. Um, it seems pretty straightforward, but as the story goes on, it becomes like a more complex history of the two characters as well as the history of the world. Um, there's kind of this mix and question of is this the modern day world? Is this a fantasy world? And there's a lot of fantastical elements to it. You know, there are anthropomorphic people that kind of live regularly in the world one of the main villains is like a an anthropomorphic uh or a a huge boar that you know stands on his back legs and wants to kill you like a human um but yeah it's it's a really interesting book like i said you learn about their history you meet a lot of really incredibly designed villains and foes turned friends you explore this extremely rich history that ba has designed and pulled from um various western african folklore stories as well as other readings that they've done um i found it to be super interesting and a really new take on a fantasy style story um, that also doubles as like a hero's journey style where we see two characters grow separately but along the same path Um, the art in this comic is probably some of the most unique and beautiful i've seen in a long while Uh, large explosions of color and extremely fun extremely fun design characters excuse me uh experimental panel layout and design and lettering that made me smile over and over with like really clever ways that ba was able to like integrate lettering into the page or make an entire um you know panel just like phrases and words um in a really smart way and i could definitely see some influence coming from one piece another shonen manga there's a lot of the uh i guess infamous doom panels that for anyone who reads one piece knows what i'm talking about um and I really thought there was a lot of pages that were really too beautiful to describe. Like there's a dream sequence um, that you see from two perspectives, um, from Awa's perspective, from Mansoor's perspective, uh, that 
I would have I could have just stared at all day. I really thought that the emotion and the power that were delivered in like those couple of pages in this dream sequence were some of the best in the entire book. And overall, like I said, I feel like this book was super new, it was really refreshing, a mix of fantasy and a style that I wasn't familiar with paired with some modern day bits like Awa uses a mixing board as her instrument, but also uses a lot of traditional musical instruments as well as she is essentially like the hype man for Mansoor as he needs to be powered up and he's looking for this shield that he lost and needs to recover in order to be the powerful hero that he is. Awa is constantly trying to hype him up by like singing songs and playing music that Mansoor refuses because he doesn't think that he's worthy. And again, there's a lot of really cool inter-character stuff that happens in growth. And yeah, I, I really just was impressed with this book, like from beginning to end. Um, I read it in like two sittings, just like over a day, because it's kind of a long book. And uh, yeah, I think for I don't even know what the cover price is. This is an easy sell. Like everybody should pick this book up for something that's new. And it's it's a really fun, exciting read that like hooks you from the get go. Um, and while like my only real criticism of this book would be like there's a couple of pages where the action overwhelms the panel design, mm-hmm. where like there's a lot of things going going on at once, and some of the experiments mental stuff you can get a little bit lost in and you're not really sure where the flow of of the story is going and on like a page or two but otherwise like that's not enough for you to say don't buy this book like Mm -hmm. for a debut graphic novel from a creator like this book is fantastic and i think that everybody should check it out so um yeah i don't i'm not taking any questions um my word is law (laughs) it's uh, it's currently (laughs) on sale on comiXology with the tko sale through uh june 28th it's uh just five bucks so yeah cool. for five bucks this book is a fucking steal but i read this i got a physical copy of it and it is is beautiful to just hold in your hands it's really high quality printing if you've ever bought any physical books from tko you know that the quality is really really there um so if you can get this physically i highly recommend it but the digital for five bucks is enough for probably enough to probably get you to read it and then convince yourself to buy the physical copy i'll say that but uh, yeah, let's move on. Let's talk about comic books that are coming out this upcoming week. Comic books are dropping on June 23rd, 2021. What are you both excited for this week? Let's start with you, Paul. Um, I am excited for Infinite Frontier number one. This is uh, written by Joshua Williamson with art by Hermanico. Um, look, it's like a sickness that I just can't overcome. I'm always going to be buying <laughs> mm-hmm. the DC cosmic events, the world ending crises. I'm a sucker for this kind of stuff. This is a miniseries that sort of spins out of the end of Death Metal. And uh, spoiler alert, if you have not read Death Metal, um, basically the Omniverse has been recreated. So everything that's ever happened in DC Comics is now canon. So all the crises were undone. Everything's free game. <laughs> I'm not going to understand, claim to understand all the details for this kind of stuff, but I'm a sucker for these type of big stories. And this one is going to follow the multiversal team of Justice Incarnate, which uh, Grant Morrison created. Um, and has a collection of characters from different parallel Earths coming together. They can travel between the the bleed space that separates the different universes of the multiverse. They're tracking something down, maybe, I'm assuming. I don't know. Again, I don't know the details. I just know it's a big DC cosmic story, and Darkseid is in it, so I'm going to buy it. Enough said. <laughs> I mean, the cover for this book looks gorgeous, so I could understand picking this up on the shelves, not really knowing what the hell is going on. But uh, yeah, yeah Darkseid looks cool. Exactly. Dark, I mean, if there's one character that might always sell me on a book, it's probably Darkseid. I mean, if he's in a book, I'm yeah. probably going to buy it. So, which has led me to some, uh, some questionable buys, but uh, hey, them's the breaks. <laughs> them's the breaks. Yeah. Well, what about you, Nick? What are you excited for this week? So, for me, it's definitely Black Hammer Reborn number one, although there were pretty two strong, equally, you know, good contenders in Ice Cream Man Volume 6 and Greg Pak's Darth Vader Volume 2. So I just want to shout out those. Mm -hmm. So I I just want to say it's kind of funny when you go to the product page for Black Hammer Reborn number one on the Dark Horse website, literally the first line of the solicit is it's just Jeff Lemire, exclamation point. Like that's the first line (laughs) of the summary. It's just Jeff Lemire's name followed by an exclamation point, which like honestly, having read a lot of Jeff Lemire's work, it doesn't really feel tonally accurate to follow his name with an exclamation point. (laughs) Could it just be like a sad emoji? Like Uh with one tier, like one Uh tier? I think that would be good. It's hard to believe it's been honestly a year and a half since the last big Black Hammer arc, Age of Doom. Um, maybe that's just because it does seem like month after month, there's at least some 
Black Hammer book in some form coming out. Mm-hmm. Of course, the big difference here, uh, other than the fact that we're jumping forward 20 years, uh, is is the fact that we are getting a different artist in Caitlin Yarsky. Uh, Dean Ormston is not on art. I hope he's doing okay and that it's not a, a medical issue um, uh, like it was initially when he well, started on the book. Let's not speculate. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just said I hope it's not. That's all. Didn't say I thought it was or wasn't. I, I hope he's mm-hmm. doing fine. All right, there we go. I I think that's a fairly apolitical statement. I hope Dean Ormston is in is is in good health. There we go. Okay. Okay. As I wish for all people, I suppose. So it's a jump forward twenty years. Lucy uh, has grown up. She's got kids. A marriage that's falling apart. A job that doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Everybody is sad. Nobody is doing better. That's what we call a Jeff Lemire bingo for those who have been <laughs> keeping score. Mm-hmm. Yarsky drew the series Coyotes for Image, um, which ran from 2017 to 18. She also wrapped up drawing another series in Image recently. Also was written by Sean Lewis called Bliss. If you're interested in either of those, you can read the first issue on Image Comics. If you kind of want to get an idea for her artwork, I took a glance at both yesterday or the day before and was pretty impressed. The other weird thing is that apparently she's only drawing the first arc of the series. Malachi Ward and Matt Sheehan will be drawing issues five through eight. So Mm. don't know why we're shuffling all the artists around, but, um, you know, normally Jeff Lemire is pretty um, deliberate with his um, artist pairings. So I'm not I'm not too concerned uh, with that, yeah, that's uh, that's all I really have to say about that book. I'm I'm excited, but also, again, like this happens all the time. We love the artist on a book. The artist is on the book for a long time, for whatever reason. That artist leaves the book, and it's real tempting and it's real easy to say, "Oh, I don't want to read this," or I guess if he's not drawing it anymore, that I'm not going to read it anymore. Sure. Uh, you know, as sometimes reserve the right to be surprised. So sure. stick around. I also think that some of these choices are deliberate, right? Like even during the Black Hammer Age of Doom stuff, even during the Black Hammer original run, we had one off specific choices yeah. and changes made because of tonal reasons. And I have a feeling that that's exactly what's happening here. Um, yeah. And it is interesting guess. because I've seen some promotional articles and, 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 and pieces for this. And they they announce it as, you know, Je- Jeff Lemire and Dean Ormston present the next chapter. So, sure. um, I again, uh, Lemire is pretty deliberate with his artist picks. So, I, I, I would be inclined to agree with you that there is some stylistic reasoning and choices behind this. And it's not people, you know, Lemire. Lemire's gone corporate and he's just trying to get four pencilers and two finishers on a book <laughs> to hit some deadline. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't think um, so. So yeah. well, we'll see. I'm excited yeah. to read this one as well. So this will be this will be really exciting. I mean, I just want more Black Hammer in my life, which is why I picked up all the other side books. But uh, yeah, let me get into my pick. But I guess before I get into my pick, I should say um, we got some folks that on our discord that are listening live uh, and they all have picks for this week. Aaron is also picking Black Hammer Reborn number one. Uh, Crashmore is picking Stray Dogs number five. Uh, Hugh at Trailblazion is picking Way of X number three. And Danny is picking Spawn's Universe number one, because as he said, he had to stay consistent uh, or stay on <laughs> brand. I, I, you know. Danny, uh, I don't appreciate it. I'm just going to say that. Uh, <laughs> for me this week, though, I am picking Gamma Flight number one. Uh, this is by Crystal Frazier and Al Ewing, I think, question mark. I don't know if Al Ewing is like architecting the book and Crystal Frazier is writing it, but we'll, you know, we'll see when the book actually comes out. Pencils Plotting. by Lan Medina, uh, colors by Antonio Fabella, and letters by Joe Sabino. Uh, spinning out of a mortal Hulk. I'm just going to read the solicit. Gamma Flight had one job, find and stop the Hulk. But when push came to smash, they decided to side with the Green Goliath and the human world intends to make them regret it. We've got Puck. We've got Absorbing Man. We've got Titania. We've got Doc Sasquatch. We've got Dr. Charlene McGowan and a horribly changed Rick Jones. Are, and they're all as fugitives from every known authority. Um, but a team that full of Gamma is bound to break before long. Like, hmm. honestly, hmm. I think this Gamma, this gamma flight team is really fun i really like to see the way that ewing wrote them throughout the immortal hulk book and so to get this bunch of misfits who kind of don't give a damn um who were trying to do the impossible task of stopping the hulk essentially 
run from the authorities seems like a no-brainer easy task for them in comparison. So <laughs> I'm really excited to see what they do in the wild shenanigans that they are desperate or definitely going to get into um, because they're just this is just a bunch of dorks all together on a team <laughs> and they some of them happen to be strong. I don't know. Paul, are you are you picking this book up? I know you were you were glued into Immortal Hulk as well. Yeah, yeah. I'm definitely grabbing this one. Uh, like you said, I really okay. enjoyed the sort of drama that's happening with that team. Again, they're all these sort of weird side characters, almost like misfit characters. And some of my favorite Marvel characters are the weird misfit characters. They don't seem to fit anywhere. So them teaming up is – that's green gold right there. Gamma <laughs> radiated gold. <laughs> exactly. Here's the real question, Paul. How excited are you – about the Hulk follow-up book to Immortal Hulk. Uh, that's the one that Danny Cates is doing? Uh, yeah, I'm probably, probably, probably going to skip that one. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm in the same boat. I might try number one, but yeah. I have a feeling I'm probably going to skip it because my guess is it's just going to be all Hulk smash and less Hulk introspection on his problems and issues with his father. So, right. um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you weren't. Paul, anyway, I tried to tee that up for you. I didn't want a diplomatic answer. Like I wanted, <laughs> you wanted some. I uh, wanted you to dunk that. Like I alley ooped that real good, Paul. Oh, Listen, look, Nick, here's I'm, what we're gonna do. We're gonna take a quick break, and then yeah. we're gonna do all sorts of dunking and alley ooping during the break before we get into our main topic this week, which is because it's Father's Day. We're gonna talk about the best and maybe worst mothers in comic books. Uh, we'll be back in just a few seconds with that. For our show today, despite what I said before the break, it is Father's Day 2021. So, of course, because we talked about fathers on Mother's Day, we're going to be talking about mothers on Father's Day, such as which are the best superhero moms that we can think of, or just comic book moms in general, because there is a point to be made. That they, I think that there are more comic book fathers, like superhero fathers, than there are superhero mothers. But maybe that's not true because I've got quite a list here. So we're going to kind of go through this and just talk about some of our favorites, some of the moms that we think really make comic books great. And are maybe they're good moms. Maybe they're bad moms. Maybe they're a mix and they're just regular people. Or to call back to an old episode, maybe they're shitty moms with hearts of gold. We don't know. Um, <laughs> so I've got a list. Nick and Paul have... Uh, some uh, lists and notes and other things. Mm -hmm. So I guess let's just dig right into it. What was, and I, I do want to say, I realize I'm here with Nick and Paul. I promise everyone I did have two of the women on our show scheduled to be on this episode to talk about this because I figured we should, uh, but then, you know, schedules conflicted and, and Paul and Nick stepped up. And so that's why we're here. But mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. let's get into it. You know, <laughs> who are who were the first comic book moms that came to your mind? I guess, Paul, we'll start with you. Um, sure, what came sure. to your mind when you saw this topic? Well, I want to very briefly uh, underline the point you made, Mike, that is so much easier to think of uh, dads in comics because, you know, there are a lot of comic book stories about sad dads and being sad about dads. And most of them are written mm -hmm. by Scott Snyder. And bad dads. You know, and bad dads. <laughs> yeah. Um, but there's something about uh, mothers in comics, or sp specifically in superhero stories, where I think they offer something very different. And sometimes because comics for so long were uh, an old boys club, mm -hmm. presence of a mothering figure was sometimes overlooked. That being said, the first person I thought of, of course, was Martha Kent, good old Ma Kent, mm -hmm. classic mm -hmm. comic book mom. She's Superman's mom. Not only not she's an adoptive mother, she takes young Clark Kent under her wing. Her and Pa Kent raise him to be the best person. He's the super human, the first one. You know, it's like the idea of like the the his education, what it means to be a good person comes from his parents. And, you know, to this mm -hmm, day, when mm -hmm. Clark Kent, when he's not Superman, when he's Clark Kent, if he needs some guidance, a shoulder to lean on, a sympathetic ear, or just a good home cooked meal, Ma Kent's always there for him. She made his mm -hmm. costume. She's the great comic book mom in my in my eyes. Definitely. I mean, I think as far as one of the consistent solid mom characters in comic books, I mean, Ma Kent is mm -hmm. definitely that person. I mean, even look at them Superman movies constantly. Like you yeah. even see, you know, Martha Kent as that mom character who is just there as she's that rock for Clark Kent uh, mm -hmm. in Superman. I think that's fantastic. 
along those same lines the first like two mothers that i was thinking of uh for this were deborah grayson from invincible um for those of you who are watching the invincible (laughs) tv show like you probably know this but if you've read the comic you also know this as well um you know deborah grayson is mark's go-to character who kind of grounds him all the time because she Mm -hmm. is the representation of his human half um spoilers i guess mark grayson is half (laughs) not human um but oh, like it's, it's really it's really interesting <laughs> uh to see like her perspective on a lot of things and she she constantly reminds mark that like he has humanity despite all of the awful things that happened to him throughout the entire series and even until the final issues of this book and you know eventually the final episodes of this show you see this character being that that humanity that reminder that like earth should be preserved earth is important to him it shouldn't mm-hmm. just be about solving the next universal conflict or whatever that like humans are important and i think that you know she she really keeps mark sane in a lot of ways i mean adam eve definitely does as well and and some of the other characters do like alan but i think that deborah is the person that he comes back to all the time throughout the entire series that just says mark every things are going to be okay. I am your mother no matter what happens to you. And that to me is just fantastic um, for a character who is this godlike being to have someone to come back to just like Superman that right. kind of grounds them and reminds them of like what it is to be a good person and to treat them as like a regular human um, when mm-hmm. others probably don't. And I, I love any story where, I mean, speaking of Superman and, and Ma Kent again, I love any story where you get Ma Kent being worried about Superman. No one else worries about Superman. He'll be all right. You know what I mean? Maybe Lois does, but like the idea that Ma mm-hmm. Kent is still a mother and a uh, an affectionate mother to the most powerful person on the planet. You know what I mean? She's always going to mm-hmm. have that. That her perspective doesn't change. It's still Clark, no matter what he's doing. So yeah, mm-hmm. I like that kind of dynamic. Yeah, and I mean Nick, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this. Um, <laughs> Because well, I'll just talk about I talk about this all day because I don't necessarily think that this is like the only representation of like a good motherly no. figure in comic no, books no. either. Because like the other side of this is I think that I think of is like Jubilee as a character. Mm-hmm. Um, now Jubilee became a mother recently in that like there's like a question up in the air. She stole a baby, but then she adopted the baby, so she's a mother to this child now. Um, Shogo, who is it's it's all adorable. It's very great. But like Jubilee is that example of like. I don't know if she's like a great mom, but she's like super caring, but she's also like a character you wouldn't want to mess with. Like she's, she has a lot of charm and and excitability and she's like a really dynamic, fun character and a really fun mother. Like you see her in all the comics, especially in the last few, five years, three to five years um, where she's been this mother character taking care of Shogo. She also is the fun loving goofball Jubilee who wants to go out and have fun and make sure that when she's with her baby, he's also having a lot of fun. Um, and just taking care of him. and of course it's a little bit different you know comparing Ma Kent and, and Deborah Grayson to Jubilee because the mm-hmm. ages of the children are a bit different but yeah. to see her be able to take on this this motherly thing having to take care of a child and then also continue to be Jubilee who you know shoots fireworks and blinds people and does all of her wacky shenanigans and mm-hmm. for a little bit she was a vampire and that was a problem and you know it got fixed don't worry about it but that's you know I, I think of her and I'm like that is that is the most exciting fun mom and on my list at least compared to some of the other ones which are a little <laughs> bit more tragic. Sure, sure, sure. But yeah, I don't know. Nick, what what are your thoughts on all this? Yeah, I mean, as 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 the two of you kind of already touched on to some extent, like th- the idea of of parents ex- existing in comics to begin with is is something of a rarity uh for mm-hmm. starters. Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems like the only common defining trait between them is that most of them have a rain-soaked headstone with a bouquet of flowers over the top of them, but uh, uh, but I mean, as 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 both of you said, I, I I don't I don't think it's a false equivalency. I do think there are sad dads and bad dads, um, some that become the main villain of a series, and some that you know abandon their their kids, and you get child abandonment and trauma. I mean, didn't. Didn't Cyclops and Havoc's dad go off into space to be a pirate and like abandon his kids? Oh, absolutely. There's okay. a whole book about it. Greg okay. Rucka wrote an entire book about young Cyclops having coming to terms with his dad, who was like, "Hey, I'm gonna go to space and be I'm with going my space to space to get now. some cigarettes. I'll be back." <laughs> I mean, pretty much that is almost the story. I think. <laughs> so, I but mean, yeah, I mean, like yeah, I, that's the thing, right? Like. 
parents don't exist much when they do it's usually dads uh and when we do have moms they tend to be kind of the side character or you know like the reassuring character uh, nobody outside of like the lawful good you know side of things mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. um and of course we're talking about you know good moms good is a interesting word and i guess we could fall down that rabbit hole if we wanted to but i mean honestly just we need to see more examples of just moms in any capacity being any sort of a you know whatever we wanted to find maternal figure as but i i do think to sort of hit on paul's point earlier it is interesting that it does seem like there are quite a few let's 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 use the word positive i would say positive maternal figures within the whole superman story all the way from you know ma kent to lois lane Mm -hmm. to um i cannot remember what his biological mother's name is jor-el something l something something laura lorvan i don't remember what is come on hmm laura lorvan is that his the kryptonian name is i'm like 90 percent mother Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, we'll, okay. we'll roll with that. Uh, <laughs> anyone who wants to disagree, put it in the put it in the chat. Yeah, Danny said Lara. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, there's no shortage. I mean, even with what little we we you know, especially a lot of us outside looking in readers know of, you know, his biological Kryptonian mother. We know that she made it so he was safe and and escaped the destruction of uh, Krypton and and mm-hmm. made it to Earth. And so there's there's a lot of positive figures there which I think is is interesting. Well, to, to follow up on that point, I, one of the other characters I thought of immediately was Aunt May, who isn't Peter Parker's biological mom, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. is the mothering figure. And it's almost the exact parallel to Ma, to Ma Kent in that she's always the driving force. I mean, as much as people want to make Spider-Man's story, him getting revenge for, you know, or feeling guilt about Uncle Ben dying, I think like Aunt May is a much stronger motivation for him to be a hero. You know, because she's always mm-hmm. there and she worries about him. He worries about her. And again, he, Peter Parker is always going to be motivated by making sure Aunt May's okay because he doesn't want to lose another parent parental figure, obviously, but also the mm-hmm. sense that she's a constant presence. And whenever he needs reassurance or a, a fresh hot plate of wheat cakes, he knows he can go back and Aunt May's always going to be there. So that I think mm-hmm. is even a better. I've always thought that was more interesting than the relationship between Uncle Ben and Peter Parker. With those Aunt May is, I think, a much more interesting character. Obviously, because you know she's not dead, <laughs> but you know, you know, what I'm saying. Like, I think, I think. <laughs> Can we at least get a bone saw reference while we're here? Because I feel like <laughs> Peter and Aunt May have a couple more pages together than I think Peter and Uncle Ben. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, but I, I think their relationship is more interesting. You know what I mean? I think it, it gets. Uh, overlooked in favor of the Uncle Ben tragedy, which again is a big part of Peter sure. Parker's story. But I think Aunt May is such a consistent figure. And again, th- to me, almost the same function to the character as Martha Kent is to to Clark. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, like another, I guess, non-superhero like mom that I was thinking of was Ellen Baker, like Animal Man, mm-hmm. like you know, the woman who's married to Animal Man. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I when I think of both the Jeff Lemire book and the Animal Man run by Grant Morrison, like those characters are pivotal to the book. Um, and while they, uh, while like, Ellen Baker is kind of like a buddy, what the fuck are you doing? Kind of character. Right. She's also like that, that she, she, she desperately wants a sense of normalcy and you feel for her as a character. She realizes that she, or she just wants to take care of her kids and live kind of a normal life. She just happens to be married to this stunt stunt actor slash superhero who is getting into all sorts of problems that endanger her. And I think like in, in Morrison's run, like you see her as in many cases, like a victim that has to kind of be saved, but also takes care of herself. I think Morrison did a good job of being like, well, she's capable of of taking care of herself. It's just a matter of when it gets to the supernatural and beyond the scope of human limits thing, that's where buddy or someone else has to like step in. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think in the, in the Lemire run, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, Nick, maybe you remember this better than I do. Mm. Like she's in the book quite a bit, but like as it is almost a side character, unfortunately, but like, I feel like that, that same strength is still portrayed in the character before yeah. it becomes more about like the red and the green and all that stuff throughout the series. Yeah. I mean, there, there's, there's quite a, there's a good amount of the book there where, um, 
I don't remember why they're separated, but Buddy is off doing something and she's basically left to protect uh, the kids along with her Mm -hmm. mother Mm -hmm. from the rot that's chasing them. And and we have a character that's, you know, very capable. And I really always liked her as a character because, you know, Animal Man is such a book that's so grounded in the conceit that like Buddy is a normal guy. He's worried about taxes. He's worried about his mortgage <laughs> payments, you know, right. mm-hmm. um, things like this. And she's such a good character for like grounding the book and sort of being like, look, Buddy, like we live in the real world and just really kind of, yeah, just honestly like grounding the book. And she doesn't worship Buddy, which I really like. She's not like, oh, mm-hmm. you're the superhero. Go do whatever you need to do. Go save whoever you need to save. I'll sit here and do all of the other things that have to be done, uh, mm-hmm. like pay the water bill. Like, no, she's like, Buddy, like, I don't know where you're going. I don't know why. <laughs> you know, when you come back, we have to do X, Y, and Z. But also in a way that you don't, understand her to be kind of like the oh it's the ball and chain right like right oh boy (laughs) you know i can't believe i have to do this like you feel for her you feel like she's the normal responsible character who's trying to like bring some order into buddy's life and buddy is the one who's just continually fucking things up so I, I think she's i think she's a fantastic character uh in both runs and (laughs) aside from her allowing the son to have the mullet in in Morrison's run that was probably the one decision that was the one mistake as a parent that I think uh, she allowed to happen but sure. right yeah. right I mean I would also you know nominate uh, Lois Lane I think she kind of serves a similar function here in that relationship mm-hmm. where it's like could you imagine being married to Superman and then having your son be Superman, like Superboy. I mean, that's the <laughs> amount of strength that she has to have to navigate that. At the same time, being a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist on top of that. I mean, it's just, there's something really uh, grounding about that character and also aspirational about Lois Lane. as She's also yeah. probably one of the most interesting characters in Superman comics, at times more interesting than Superman himself, I would argue. Right. Yeah, I, I totally can get up. I haven't read enough with Lois Lane to speak to that. But I mean, I from everything I've seen, I've always pictured like Lois Lane isn't just some side character in a Superman story. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, yeah. Like yeah. she can drive her own book as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, this and this kind of brings me into the list that I was I was looking at of like, like super heroic characters who are also moms like oh, sure. Jean yeah. Grey. Um, is a character that I think of and well like I don't think that the a lot of comics necessarily spend a lot of time on her being a mother you know she's she is a mom I don't know if she's the greatest mom like she it's weird because she's a character who like has had children uh, specifically like Nate Gray or you know Cable or you know X-Man or Nate's or Cable I guess Um, but she's kind of like the parent who who can't focus on the one kid because she's also taking care of the entire neighborhood and while there is like a, a, a an admirable quality about that uh it's also like these kids are then neglected because of it and i think it's it's funny to see like the modern incarnation of gene gray cyclops and the third or the second parent or third parent wolverine i guess taking <laughs> uh-huh. care of the summer's family now in this like modern day of x-men because they do intentionally go out of their way to show the summer's family kind of sticking together and gene does represent that mom character alongside of um you know cyclops taking care of things in from the dad perspective but yeah i don't necessarily know if she's a great mom but she is like she is a motherly figure to many other characters right either in like a mentor like perspective or just like trying to make amends for her kids like sorry we had to send you out to the future cable but you know i want to make it up to you (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um which feels like the same a similar aspect as cyclops but um i feel like gene does it with a little bit more care than cyclops does um because that dude's militant to a t in a lot of ways <laughs> <clears throat> but i mean i've got a whole list of just more other marvel yeah. characters that i was thinking of like virginia vision is another one that i feel like it's 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 really unique to talk about because the character virginia was created specifically for like a book only survives through a book but um if you've read the vision uh you know that this character you know derived from vision's i guess idea of what he thinks a family should be but she spends a lot of that time really going out of her way to take care of her family in (laughs) 
in almost violent ways. Yeah, and I feel yeah. like that she is on the whole a very good mother, but there is so much trauma and so much baggage with that character um, that she can't fully be realized and it, it, it ends up being the, the downfall of, of her character in some ways. I don't know if, if you guys, you guys have all read the vision. So maybe yeah. you've got some thoughts on this. Uh, you know, I don't remember a lot of the details of that. So, uh, but I remember like that, that the idea of a sim- synthetic character creating uh, their image of what a mother would be. It was kind of an interesting mm-hmm. twist to that, that whole story, you know? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Uh, speaking of a mother that would, uh, protect their children and their family at all costs. I don't know if anyone's reading the current Black Widow run that uh, Kelly Thompson is writing, but uh, spoiler alerts if you're not. Uh, the opening arc of that story is about Natasha Romanoff basically being brainwashed into thinking that she has a family, like a husband and a son. Mm-hmm. And the I, the way that character has always been portrayed is a cold-blooded assassin that'll do anything. When you get to see her be comfortable but also protective and when she realizes what's going on the lengths which she'll go to protect her family and her son i mean Mm -hmm. would you mess with a mom who was a trained russian assassin like i don't think so so i think (laughs) you get a sense that that character is a lot more nuanced and i think a lot of portrayals of natasha usually are so i really appreciate that even though it turns out to be a, a giant hoax perpetrated by arcade it is an interesting, mm-hmm. you know, opening to that story to get to see her be happy and then also lose everything at the same time, be a protective, caring, you know, figure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, I need to get, I need to catch up. I guess because that really sounds, really that sounds good. wild. Yeah, <laughs> I highly recommend that series. I, I, I'm really enjoying it so far. So yeah, another one that I had on my list was. Uh, <laughs> Maybe this isn't this isn't a great example, but Mystique, uh, Mystique <laughs> is is the mother of two children. Well, sort of in the X Men universe, she is the adoptive mother of Rogue, and she is the actual mother of Nightcrawler. Ultimately, she's I don't think she's a very good mom because <laughs> she's kind <laughs> of like a I'm not going to mother you. I'm not going to take care of you. With some exception, I think that you know she's done a little bit more with Rogue and. Uh, you know, to try to strengthen their relationship. But it ultimately comes down to like, I'm going to teach you survival skills. That's the way that I'm going to show you love. I'm also Mm going to be super harsh. And I would leave you in a forest with nothing on you to see if you'd survive. Because if you're my child, you would survive. Is that a good mothering tactic? (laughs) Is that a good parenting tactic? Probably not. But she definitely tries, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know. I I mean, I don't even even know if that falls into the category of like, shitty mom with heart of gold even so maybe i don't know that was just on my list i just had to bring it up well that reminds me uh, i think uh, maybe nick i think you might mention this as well in your your little list here but uh granny goodness came to mind because she's not a good mother yeah. oh but, um, okay you know some may question her parenting methods and the fact that she runs an <laughs> orphanage that uses torture and brainwashing to uh right. train people but uh you know always uh-huh. be detractors <laughs> right sure but you know, she did uh, sort of raise Scott Free, aka Mister Miracle. So you know, there's that, mm-hmm. and she trained the female Fury. So she trained Big Barda, who turned out to be a pretty good mom in her own right. So yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I I would not say Granny Goodness is a quote unquote good mother, but she is a mom, uh, an adoptive mom, if that. So uh, yeah. Granny Goodness <laughs> might get a visit from CPS, is what you're saying, <laughs> right? <laughs> Look, when you're, you know, when you're running the orphanage on Apocalypse, you know, the the oversight might not be as it as uh, as it is here in the states. You know, might not be. There's a lot more, you yeah. know, a lot, of, yeah. a lot looser up there. Uh, I know. think I think Darkseid is is, and he's not really that is doesn't <laughs> encompass like childcare. Yeah. So, <laughs> I guess I don't know. The last one that I had on my list was Susan Storm. Um, aka the invisible woman mm-hmm. uh, and i feel like you know fantastic for long lineage of, of stories and stuff like that i think sue storm has always been kind of you know at least for for a long time was treated as like oh no the character we need to rescue oh no the character that's like on the side that's not really the focus of the story and outside of when her powers become needed um and then i feel like in the more modern the era to invisible woman yeah and <laughs> yes exactly uh but i feel like in the modern era i think you know a lot of writers um like you know mark are uh jonathan hickman i don't know i haven't read dan slot's run but a lot of writers have focused on you know 
talking more about that family cohesion. And the more they talk about it, Reed Richards ends up being like the really bad parent. And (laughs) it's it's Sue Storm who has to take care of everything and make sure that this family is working, you know, on top of being her own level of like Omega threat that could, you know, wipe out all of the earth if she really wanted to um, at, at the same level as as Reed. And it's kind of funny to see that like Reed's focus on you know, inventing and science and all the other bullshit that he does, you know, always takes first place over the rest of his family and stuff. And I think Sue, it's the exact opposite. She understands mm-hmm. the necessity for um, superheroing, but at the same time, family cohesion is in, you know, creating a good welcoming family is super important to her, which is why she keeps her brother around, which is why she's always making sure that her kids are studying and, you know, doing all sorts of stuff. And it, help, mm-hmm. it helps that, you know, Franklin Richards and, uh, uh, oh man, I'm blanking on their daughter's name. Uh, Valeria have yeah. Valeria. Thank you. Yeah. Have like these incredible powers on their own, or they're super smart in some capacity. Um, but she still tries to be a mother for them and tries to take care of them and help them. You know, depending on the comics that you read, sometimes that comes off as a little rude. But it also, I think, it for the most part, it comes off as like your dad is is not going to pay attention to you. So I'm going to take care of you because that's my job as a parent. And I, I, I you know, I feel like as far as superhero moms are concerned, I feel like she's probably one of the best, if not the best compared to at least some of the others that we put here. That's <laughs> in, in terms of, you know, superhero and also a parent, you know? Yeah. And that's a really interesting point. Cause I, I thought about Sue Storm as well, but like I've not read a ton of fantastic four. And I also know that the, mm-hmm. a lot of the earlier stuff I read with, uh, with Jack and Stan, the way that, Stan portrays her isn't always flattering, you know, <laughs> that stuff hasn't aged well, the way she's mm-hmm, portrayed mm-hmm. as basically being, uh, uh, doing the laundry around, you know, the Baxter building. Uh, so right. as opposed to being a superhero in her own right. So it's like, yeah, c- conforming to the, the gender norms of the time, which were not great. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But the thing is like, she was a central part of that team. And even before she was a mother, you know, she was kind of seen as, someone that kept the team together. Could you imagine you you got, you got a literal hothead who's her brother and you got the Mm -hmm. moping Ben Grimm in the corner and you got Reed doing God knows what she has to keep it all together. So he's a very strong character, even though she's not always, Mm -hmm. wasn't always portrayed that way. Right. Similarly, I was kind of thinking about queen Hippolyta from wonder woman. So she's, you know, Diana's Mm -hmm. mother. She's also the queen of the Mm -hmm. Amazons, but she's one of those characters that, and that I feel like, maybe doesn't have a lot of consistent characterization. She shows up when the writer needs her to, and maybe does not always right. a cohesive, you know, well fleshed out character in her own right. But I said a lot of stuff I've read, you know, she's always been mm-hmm. important because she's Diana's mom, but it's like, I think that's a character that maybe is more complex than maybe a lot of stories. Let her be. Cause that makes sense. Definitely. Danny in our chat pointed out, someone that I can't believe is not on my list, which is Jessica Jones. Oh, yeah. Jessica Jones. You know, let's forget about like the last couple of years of Jessica Jones stories because they aren't consistent with, I think, like especially like the TV show and stuff aren't really super consistent with Jessica Jones's story in the comics. And Jessica Jones in the comics, you know, is is. I don't know if they're married, but they have a child together with Luke or she's a child with Luke Cage. And for a long time, especially some of the books that I read, like along the New Avengers line and stuff that Brian Michael Bendis did, you know, Jessica Jones and Luke Cage spent a lot of their time just like taking care of their kid. Like that's their whole thing. They're like, number one, we have to take care of the kid. And Jessica Jones is usually the person that's like carrying the kid around with Luke. And I feel like they do a lot of really good bits with the two of them just taking care of their kid and being like good parents to them and making sure that this baby is safe and all that stuff. And I feel like they managed to to balance that superheroics as well as being parents pretty well. And I think Jessica does it even more so in like some of her solo books. Um, you know, like she is a mom first and a detective second and a superhero third, I guess. Um, I feel like that's how she, she ranks things. But uh, yeah, Jessica Jones is a, is a fantastic example. I, I think that I, I, I have very fond memories of reading a lot of the books that she's featured in the discussion of her being a parent, I think maybe wasn't super relevant to me as like a 20 year old, but maybe as like a 32 year old. I'm like, Oh, okay. Maybe I see you got responsibilities as an adult. I think I get that. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. Was there anyone else you guys wanted to talk about here? I feel like we've, we've, we've gone through a good list. I'm sure there's a zillion other people that we didn't think of for this episode, yeah. but I figured we had to follow through with the joke. That <laughs> our, you know, our our best dad's episode fell on Mother's Day, so I figured we might as well do, uh, we should do a, a best moms on, on Father's Day because, you know, 
we gotta we gotta be consistent in some capacity. Yeah, and I I feel like uh you know as we alluded to, I think maybe uh there might not be as much representation of good mothers in comics, which is is a problem, and maybe that's why we can't think of as many as uh, maybe we should. So I, I hope there are people out there who are screaming at us with some good recommendations that mm-hmm. we overlooked and should let us know as soon as they can. Absolutely, absolutely. Danny is. He's he wanted to make sure that he that everyone knew he's yelling at us in the chat. We're going through a lot of them, Danny, I promise. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so this is this is fun. I don't know. Nick, do you have any final thoughts? I'm going to I'm going to toss to you before we wrap up here. Any any final yeah, thoughts from you? Sure. I mean, uh, Danny asked if I had the Xenomorph Queen on my list. <laughs> I mean, oh. it, it feels it feels a little on the nose for me. I think that's probably why it wasn't on the list, but also wasn't on the list because it's like a well duh situation. Like, of course, <laughs> The Xenomorph Queen is a great mom. And I mean, full stop. Uh, There's nothing else to say. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. Very supportive maternal figure. Uh, We'll definitely uh, protect the hive at all costs. (laughs) Sometimes you have some humans that thwart your activities and call you rude words (laughs) and tell you to not kill Newt. Um, That happens. (laughs) Sure. We all have those moments. Uh, definitely. The other one it's I would relatable. definitely bring up is, I think, Talia al Ghul is kind of an interesting mm. mother figure. Okay. Um, <laughs> I mean, if you want to talk about setting your kid up for success, there's definitely some of that going on, <laughs> preparing your kid to go out into the world and have sure. the tools to survive. Definitely sure. a positive there. Uh huh. There's definitely you got to put one in the detractor column for like trying to live vicariously through your children. Not really great, but definitely uh-huh. happening. Uh-huh. Also, like kind of got that thing going on where it's like, you know, hey, Damien, what are you interested in? Well, that really doesn't happen. She kind of decides. So it's sort of the parent, you know, signing the kid up for softball, even though maybe the kid doesn't does or doesn't want to play softball. If softball is assassinations, um, <laughs> right, right. So you can kind of go in a couple different ways there. Also, you've got kind of that weird child custody agreement with Bruce Wayne, which is right, you know, after X amount of years, I am just going to dump the child off. It's not like a you get weekends thing. It's a mm-hmm. here he is. You get the adolescent ages and beyond. Yeah, you get the terrible teens. Um, now, let's be honest, like. Giving your child to Batman for protection feels questionable. It doesn't have the best track record in terms of, you know, not putting children right. in danger. So, uh, right. but again, if your child is a trained assassin, maybe there's a gray area there. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I totally forgot I about we'll, that. We'll have that's, to... a, that's a great suggestion. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, definitely more to be discussed on that uh, later <laughs> episode, I think. But I guess I. Thank you guys for humoring me with today's, uh, you know, wild discussion. Um, as always, I guess you can follow us all on Twitter if you're interested. You can follow Nick at Death Star Plans. You can follow Paul at Ohio Poly. You can follow me at Mike Rappin. And you can follow the show at IRCB Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. This episode first aired on Patreon and is possible because of our wonderful patrons. You can join today for exclusive series like IRCB Movie Club, Saga of Saga, and more. And you can join now. That's at patreon.com forward slash IRCB podcast. And if you haven't already, please take a minute to rate and review the show. Five stars. On Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts, it honestly does help spread the word about the show. And you can join the IRCB Discord community to chat about comics, listen to our episodes as we record them live. And you can do that at ircbpodcast.com slash discord. It would help us a lot if you would tell your friends about the show and maybe mention it next time you're at your local comic shop. Infinity Shred is the best band in the universe. They do all of our music. We can't thank them enough. Xander is a really cool guy who helps make this show sound wonderful every single week. Thank you to Xander. Thanks to everyone listening live. To you know, Today we had a bunch of people, Danny, Aaron, uh, Hugh, and uh, Crashmore. We appreciate it. And thank you to everyone out there who listens to our episodes. Um, you are fantastic people. Until next time, comics are good, and so are you.